I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. On this episode, I talk with four experts about some new federal regulations that will have a big impact on venture capital and private equity funds with investing activities in China and certain other countries. I've got four expert panelists who are going to join us in a minute. So the relationship between the U.S. and China is a complicated one, right? And by all accounts, it's now entering a new, potentially more difficult phase. Investments from China into U.S. companies and operations have long been subject to federal review by the Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States, commonly called CFIUS. And now the Biden administration is looking to make investments going the other way also subject to review. According to many sources, a new executive order is now being drafted and will be issued soon. It's being called reverse CFIUS. The Biden administration's purpose in this is to check Chinese ambitions in fields such as AI and quantum computing, with the clear aim of slowing the development of China's military capabilities. But what do the new expected regulations mean for U.S. investors? Today, there are many outbound transactions conducted by venture capital, private equity, and other U.S. investors into Chinese investment opportunities. By some accounts, nearly half of these transactions will be subject to this new set of regulations. When I want to go have lunch in Palo Alto and talk about things going on in the world with somebody smart, one of the first people I call is often Louis Lowe. Good afternoon, Louis. Brett, thank you so much for uh, helping us put this show together. And uh, I'm really excited uh, to have uh, such a great group of uh, experts uh, join us and, and help us uh, Silicon Valley guys figure out how to navigate uh, this uh, uh, environment that we're in. But, you know, Brett, I, I think one of the most significant changes of Silicon Valley over the last 20 years has been the, the, the rise in importance of Asian capital uh, as well yeah. as Asian markets for technology companies who right. launch products both, both directions. In, in all directions. Yep. And we've we've talked about CFIUS and we're not talking about the medical condition uh, for for years, uh, but but we, we've got something coming down the pike, which I think is really important. And I'm just so delighted to have this group with us, which I'll let you introduce. Awesome. You want to give us the brief background on you first, Louis, which I don't think you did yet. Well, I, I, I'm a Silicon Valley lawyer. I help... Uh, Companies get foreign finance, scaled for growth, bought and sold, and I help a lot of uh, corporate uh, investors uh, and and public and private equity firms uh, invest capital in uh, new businesses, and and I have a lot of fun doing it uh, with smart people uh, like the folks we have today. Christopher. Also joining us is uh, Chris, one of Louis' partners. Louis, Brad, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to join this evening. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Christopher Swift, and along with Louis, I'm a partner at Foley & Lardner. I split my time between our Washington, D.C. and New York offices. Um, I'm a white-collar lawyer and a national security lawyer. And so what does that mean? Um, that means I my practice deals with any time a company, whether it's early stage or otherwise, has to interface with the U.S. national security community. Uh, about half of that is white-collar defense and investigations involving scary things you might see in the headlines. The other half of that is running a very, very active CFIUS practice where we're turning, I don't know, 20 to 30 filings a year before the committee and its constituent agencies. So my practice looks like what would happen if a Tom Clancy novel and a John Grisham novel were to get squished together. 
Uh, and a lot of the counseling that we do for clients, both strategic business planning, dovetails very, very closely with the issues that Brad and Louie have outlined. Um, I also have a PhD in political science and spent my pre-law career in and around the U.S. national security with stints at the White House and Treasury, and also with various think tanks here in Washington. So we can do the policy and the law, and also show you where the law is not consistent with the policy, give you a sense of what's coming next. Nice. Welcome, Chris. And also joining us is H.K. Park. Hey, H.K. Hi, uh, Brett. Thank you very much. Uh, greetings from Washington, D.C. My name is H.K. Park. I'm a managing director at Crumpton Global here in Washington. I came from the Defense Department where I was a policy advisor, and I'm currently at a firm comprised mostly of former intelligence agency executives. We spent a lot of time uh, vetting investors and uh, foreign acquisition targets. Uh, and most recently, we've been actually working with Foley and Larder to help some VCs prepare for this new regulation coming down the pike. Very nice. And uh, finally, joining us uh, live from Taipei, Kerr Gamps. Hey, Kerr. Greetings. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Brett. Yeah, it's uh, 6 a.m. here in uh, Taipei. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for convening the group and um, also really appreciate uh, the folks at Foley for for convening. Um, so, yeah, as, as you mentioned, um, Brett, my name is uh, Kerr Gibbs, and I, I've been living in China for, for the last 19 years. And um, most recently as the uh, president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai. And uh, actually, just a quick comment about, um, and then my, my previous life is, is as a banker. I was, uh, worked for HSBC doing technology deals uh, throughout Asia Pacific. And just a quick quick comment about what, what Louis mentioned, you know, is this, this the, the macro trend, you know, is, is the, you know, the, the shift and attention to Asia, both as inbound and outbound investments, but then also, I think also the the other macro trend that's happening is this is uh, is businesses being reluctantly pulled into the national security sphere, and so uh, similar to Christopher covering sort of law and public policy, I sort of cover public policy business, and 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 that's really been a, a struggle um, for for the American business community in in, in China, just a very reluctant um, uh, pull. In that in that direction, right. So, Kirby, we could start by uh, giving us the update on where things stand with this executive order. This thing has been kind of rumored for a while. There's a piece at Axios last week about it, uh, but it seems to be a pretty fluid situation. So, maybe you could give us the update on what you know about it. Sure. Yeah, it is a fluid situation, but it is. I mean, the the momentum is definitely there, and so there, I don't think there's any question that that something is going to happen. What shape and form is that going to take? I think that the the folks that are sitting in Washington D.C. would might might have a, a better uh, grasp for for the timing of it and how it's how it's going to shape out. But the the larger context for this really is the the national security um, to to th- how to think about CFIUS and reverse CFIUS, and also in the context of of the export controls, and there's there's a larger trend going on here. Um, I mean, and everybody is concerned about about China and and the potential threat that it causes to stability in the region. And and um, I mean, that's not why I'm here in Taiwan right now, but but Taiwan is very much the focal point of that threat. Um, so the things that have happened recently, um, I mean, Taiwan itself um, with it has has recently reinstated a mandatory military service for 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 their people. Japan uh, doubling their defense budget, which was just just you know a a, a major move for for Japan to do right. that. And, 
And, right. um, and then, of course, the U.S. and China increasingly appearing to, to, to prepare for, for increased competition or maybe even, even confrontation. Um, so in the, in the larger context for this, again, I think both governments are, um, as I mentioned, are, are getting business more and more involved in the national security sphere. So just a quick comment about China and then also in the U.S., I want to read a, a quote uh, from, from Tony Blinken that I think sets the context for this conversation. On, on the China side, it's, it's sort of, it's less new. There's always been this connection between business and government and national security, and they've been cracking down on, on the tech businesses and these things. So, so in China, it's, it's, it's less of a new phenomenon. But uh, the Tony Blinken quote that I want to I share with people, and, and again, Louis and I have, have shared this with some of his clients, and it always kind of gets people's attention. Um, but he, about a year ago, when, when the Secretary of State was sort of teeing up the Biden administration's uh, policy towards China, he, he, he inserted this, this quote in, in his speech, and it got a lot of attention from the American business community in China. Um, so he said, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it to you. It's very brief. He said, we believe and we expect the business community to understand that the price of admission to China's market must not be the sacrifice of our core values or long-term competitive and technological advantages. We're counting on businesses to pursue growth responsibly, assess risks soberly, and work with us not only to protect but to strengthen our national security. So that's um, that's the context for kind of where the CFIUS rules and, and now reverse CFIUS and export controls kind of kind of land. So we can talk more about the details there. And I think Blink, I think Blinken is due to visit China like next month, and that's part of the driver. I think they want to get the CEO out beforehand. Is that right? He is. He is. Uh, he's 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 due to, to 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 visit China, which is huge. I mean, that's a that's a a great step and a positive step. The, the interaction between uh, Biden and Xi was also positive. There's also Liu He and Janet Yellen met, I think, a few hours ago in, in Davos. That's also a, a good step. Um, but it's also interesting, and again, this sets the context for, for I think, reverse CFIUS, is Liu He's comments at Davos. I mean, he's very much, he's, he's, he's in sales mode right now. And there's a reason for that. He's, he's, in, he's in selling mode, trying to get, uh, international investors back into the China market after this three-year nightmare, frankly, um, of, of, of zero COVID. And the reason for that, um, I mean, in the last 20 years or so, we've seen a shift in terms of how much China needs foreign investment. It went from really needing it in the early days of going all the way back to Deng Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin to, to sort right. of wanting it, but not necessarily needing it. They were not capital starved. Now they're back. Now they're back to a situation where they very much need investment, no matter where it comes from. And we've, we've seen in the last few weeks, we've seen this dynamic between the central central government actually provides a lot of the funding that that keeps the provinces afloat. And zero COVID has been devastating at the provincial level in terms of budgets. Yeah. I mean, everybody focuses on the human cost and the inconvenience of these lockdowns, but let's talk about the cost. I mean, it's it's you, you shut down your economy. At the same time, you need to employ an army of people to impose these controls. And then let's not forget about the cost of the test kits themselves. When you start testing your entire population, yeah, you want to know. That's that's very expensive. Yep. Yep. So Chris, I have a question for you. So the uh so if I'm an investor who does does investing in China, 
obviously my big concern about this whole thing is, uh, you know, are my, you know, are my transactions going to be covered? And uh, so the rumors are things like battery technology and biotech will not be included. What have you, what have you heard about what, what, it, what is included, what's not included? Well, Brett, one of the easiest ways to look at that is first to, to bridge the gap from what Kerr was saying about the political and geopolitical environment to understand what the Trump administration and now the Biden administration have really been after with both CFIUS and reverse CFIUS. Um, and if you think about it from a national security perspective rather than a business perspective, if you stand in the government's shoes for a minute, um, during the Cold War, CFIUS was all about national security as were the export control laws. Right, During the right. global war on terrorism, CFIUS was about national security, but also homeland security. So suddenly stuff like critical infrastructure became really important. It wasn't just aerospace and defense anymore. Well, now it's moved from national security to homeland security to industrial security. And the United States, you know, since world, the end of World War II, liked to pretend that it didn't have an industrial security policy and that it was all for open markets and free trade and all the rest. And this is, we've seen the global economy sort of shift from, you know, patterns of globalization to patterns of regionalization. We're starting to see first the Trump administration and the Biden administration really go hard on this industrial policy, whether it's yeah. cracking down on export control violations, whether it's imposing sanctions, whether it's CFIUS, whether it's the CHIPS Act. With respect to reverse CFIUS, the easiest way to understand what the Biden administration is likely to have on its priority list in terms of outbound investment from the United States into China are to look at the same things that the government's worried about when the Chinese invest here. And that is to say certain categories of technology, certain infrastructure issues, and certain data and privacy issues. So primarily, if we look at technology, it's going to be anything that's related to weapons, right? That's all prohibited. And so looking at any kind of interface between a U.S. investor in a Chinese company and the Chinese military industrial complex, that's going to be a primary priority for the Biden administration. Um, but, you know, if we get away from the weapons world and we look at the dual use technology world, something as simple as an iPhone may not seem like a dangerous idea. But there's a lot of technology in here that could be transferred to uh, Chinese party, even if it's a Chinese Yuri, and then leaked out into the Chinese ecosystem. And so when you look at dual use technology, the stuff that's not weapons, but is nonetheless export controlled, you're going to see that be a high priority as well. Um, you know, infrastructure, that's really not likely to be an issue. It's a big issue for online security purposes here in the United States. But for outbound investment, I don't think that's likely to be on the ledger for the Biden administration. We'll have to wait and see. But one area we're also likely to see be quite, become quite important will be anything related to sensitive personal data. And what does that capture? That's going to capture healthcare. It's going to capture life sciences. It's going to capture biotech. Not just the transfer of technology and know-how and IP and all the rest that we normally think about, but also the possibility of transferring personally identifiable information like yeah. insurance information or health information or even sure. just, you know, your address and your name and your social security number. So all those things, those privacy-related concerns that we see CFIUS really digging into in China, directed investments into the United States, we're likely to see those same data and privacy and healthcare concerns added onto the technology issues we discussed earlier. Makes sense. 
So, Louis, I want to bring you in on this. So, uh, you're sit, you're seated in the heart of Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, California. And as you said, this uh, certainly in Silicon Valley, Asian capital, Asian uh, IP, Asian uh, partnerships are a big part of the of the uh, of the Silicon Valley ecosystem. So, what are you what are you hearing from uh, from your clients in terms of concerns, lack of concern, et cetera? Yeah. So, um, when people think about Cifius, they typically think about uh, uh, an Asian investor, specifically a Chinese investor, writing a check into their company, uh, taking a board seat, perhaps um, uh, having some information rights, uh, being able to look into the into the technology that's being built here in the Silicon Valley, or or that's that's being uh, 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 built from here, and um, you know we have more public and private companies in a 50 mile radius here than anywhere in the world. Uh, we have major universities, uh, major technology companies, and those companies have been trying to access the the Chinese market for many years. And one of, one of the reasons I'm so happy to have Kerr here is he was effectively the ambassador for U.S. business trying to, to get into China. Uh, and when he was leading the AmCham, he would be the first stop uh, when you're planning a trip to China to how do I get meetings with uh, the, the national government? How do I get meetings with regional governments? Who do I talk to if I want to set up a factory? Um, that's Kerr. Uh, and that's what he did. And, and he's coming out with a book about how to do business in China in, in light of this environment, which you know I want to talk about more. But, but why is this topic relevant uh, for our audience today is that whether you are a venture capital firm, a startup, a large tech company, you require access to the China market uh, in order for your 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 product to go, really go from garage to global, as I say here in this little background, if I can point to it right. And and you know, soon enough, it will be, uh, if not the largest, um, already it is one of the most important consumer markets in, in the world. And so um, when we go into access a market, we always think, do we go direct and just sell directly to consumers from our headquarters here? Do we set up a branch? Do we set up a subsidiary? Um, what's the, the best way? And uh, over time, we've learned that the, the best way to access Chinese consumers is to partner with uh, a local Chinese entity, create what we call a WUFI or a joint venture, and for that entity uh, to sell products uh, to Chinese investors. And that means, pardon me, consumers. And that means we've got to uh, get technology from here into Silicon Valley, and that's controlled by export uh, regimes. And and now uh, when we want to just put money into uh, China and other countries, um, that is going to be reviewed by the this this committee on on foreign investment in the United States, CFIUS, which will have a new name. Uh, but it's an interagency uh, uh, committee made up of members of the Treasury Department and the National Security Agencies and the Commerce Department uh, and others. Um, who get together and, and look at whether this investment into the U.S. is going to hurt national security or, or whether it should be cleared. And now they're going to look at investments going from the U.S. into China and say, is that okay? Um, and, and so that's why we've got this group. And I, and I want to bring in uh, my, my good friend, H.K. Park from, from Crumpton, who, who's here, as uh, he and I have been helping uh, a lot of investors look at the, th those investments into China and what is the risk profile uh, of those investments into into China and and what's the what's what's the risk and how do we manage it 
And uh, HK, rather than me tell this story, I'd love to to have you bring you in here and and help explain to our audience what is the the risk that you're trying to help identify. Sure, happy to. Thanks, um, thanks, Louis. I think you know the risk uh, relates to what their incoming regulation might be, and as you and Chris discussed, there's a lot of ambiguity still about what uh, technologies might be included, whether it includes you know semiconductors, robotics, AI, biotech, for example. Um, but also the scope of the of the new regulation. Um, but even though there's some ambiguity, um, there are some areas we can actually start planning now and thinking ahead. Uh, if you're a venture capital firm or a corporate venture capital firm or a pension, um, and you've, let's say, have 30 or 40 Chinese uh, tech companies in your portfolio, um, there are certain screens you can apply to look at those companies and figure out from the defense perspective, which ones you know have supplier or customer relationships with the Chinese military. Um, which ones receive funding from the Chinese military or intelligence agencies? Um, which ones have ultimate beneficial ownership tied to uh, Chinese state-owned enterprise, for example? Or which ones have technologies that could be used or applied for uh, defense or intelligence purposes? That's one uh, element. The other is economic, which I think Kerr referred to as well. It's this broader question of, um, does $1 invested in China uh, benefit China economically compared to the U.S.? If that dollar were invested here. So it's a very expansive definition of national security. So it could be um, it's a very zero-sum perspective of the world as well. But there's some members of Congress who are criticizing investors who are, quote-unquote, investing in our enemy um, and are trying to find ways to uh, curb investment into uh, key drivers of the future economy, like semiconductors, for example, or quantum computing, or even commercial space. Um, so look at that as well. Another area is reputational. You know, while the you know investment in a certain Chinese company might be legal, it might be very hard to defend on the front pages of the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. It just doesn't sound right to the general public. It's hard to explain um, uh, the investment. And another area is legal. And my friends at Foley can talk more about this. But questions of you know foreign direct product rule, uh, sanctions, um, export controls on certain uh, technologies that companies are investing right now in China. So if I could just ask you to really boil it down here, HK, zooming out to 30,000 feet in the air, why is it important for our audience to be aware of reverse CFIUS and what is the cost of doing nothing and 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 not getting ahead of uh, what we think is coming? So the regulation may or may not block uh, future investments in certain technologies. We don't know yet, right? Uh, it may uh, affect penalties for U.S. investors as well. Uh, they may go back in time to look at past investments too, depending upon how they define uh, an investment. Um, the cost of doing nothing may be that um, you may have to publicize or notify the U.S. government about your investments in China, and that notification may become public so that members of Congress or the media or certain watchdogs might profile your company or your investment firm about your investments in certain companies. And so you have a reputational risk as well of, uh, of potential problematic investments in China. So those are the, kind of the main concerns, either regulatory, including punitive U.S. government and reputational. So um, you, just to follow up on that, let's say uh, you're, you're uh, a U.S. business looking to uh, sell, let's say, electric vehicles in China, and uh, you've got a, a majority-owned subsidiary in China, and you're, you're, you're uh, starting your investment plan uh, to be able to manufacture cars and deliver them in the country, maybe have uh, 
concessions, uh, places that you sell them, dealerships. Um, if you embark on on that now and then the, the regulation comes into place, you might be prohibited uh, from funding that plan and putting yourself in, in some jeopardy there. You might uh, be committed to putting some technology there, which isn't legal um, and which can get you into some hot water. Um, what if you put U.S. employees there? Um, what what does that um, look like? And and I think that we we all think about you know the U.S. government regulation. And what I've learned from Kerr is that every time there's a U.S. government regulation, there will be a corresponding Chinese regulation. Um, and so um, it's it's a it's a very complex um, web. And uh, we say this, and I I, I heard the word enemy. Um, uh, I, I think that it's uh, very important uh, that we look at our uh, other markets uh, in the business context as as places where we can be successful. And American business has been very successful in completing competing in the global environment, um, and, and how we can help um, enable that. And and so, Kerr, um, yeah, I I would love to hear from you as to you know what how you would how you would advise a, a U.S. business that's looking to access the China market right now. And well, how, how should they uh, go ahead and do that, knowing that, you know, reverse CFIUS is, is coming? Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Louie. And also, thank, thanks for the plug on my book. I appreciate it. Uh, the, the folks at Paul Grave McMillan will be very grateful. Uh, it is, does come out in May, um, and it's, it's called Selling to China. So, so appreciate that. But, um, but HK Park actually just said something that got everybody's attention, which is that reverse ship CFIUS may, um, may impact past investments. That is a huge, that, that was the big deal. Total, yeah. That's a big deal. That's a big yeah. deal. Because when yeah. you think about the stock of, of investment that's already been made, right? I mean, GM, Coca-Cola, you know, it, it's enormous, you know, and, and, um, and, and as Christopher pointed out, you know, some of these have national security implications. Some of them, nobody would have thought, but, but look how many iPhones are, 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 are made in China. So, and, and the, here, I want to make another point about reverse CFIUS and what, what's going on here and, and, um, how it can impact the business community that's, that's in China already. So there's a, con- there's a link here between export controls and reverse CFIUS and, and Louie and I have talked about, talked to some of his clients about this. It gets their attention when you think about um, export controls. Uh, we understand why they're there, but one of the responses that American businesses have taken to when when the U.S. government says, uh, "Okay, uh, X company, the technology that you developed in the U.S., you cannot use that in China." What's the what's the logical response? Well, to a global company that views China as it's number one or number two growth market globally. They're already in China. They're already doing R and D in China. What are you going to do logically if you're sitting in headquarters at a large American company? You're going to say, "Well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to move my R and D from United States of America into China." That's a that's a direct yeah. response. And I'm not saying that that every company is doing that or that that's the response in every situation, but that is the response in many cases. That they simply move that R and D into China, and so and so reverse CFIUS in a way, you know, in a way is going to is going to plug that is going to plug that gap. Um, so so what we're seeing in China is American companies, the multinationals, really beefing up 
there uh, as at the point that you, you made earlier, Louise, like what, what's, what's, the, what's the cost of, of ignoring this? They can't ignore it. It, 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 it cannot be ignored. It, it's, it's, you, you have to beef up your, your compliance teams, your legal teams. You, you've got to get ahead of this. Uh, otherwise, uh, again, it, it could be an existential threat when you think about uh, you know, getting, getting, cross, getting crossed up in the in U.S. government. And by the way, European companies as well. All these things are linked, so the European companies are paying a lot of attention to this as well because they can also get 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 crossed up. So I have a, I have a question for the uh, for the law dogs on this call. So in a in a in a transaction, an investment transaction, you know, there's frequently a whole bunch of different parties, right? There's different, there's multiple investors. There's you know, there's an investment bank involved. There's law firms are involved. Yada yada yada. Who who has the reporting obligation of this? Good question. So under, <laughs> the, the bankers and lawyers go like this, right? <laughs> yeah. well, Brett, this is Christopher. Let me take a stab at that question, right? So we don't know who has the reporting obligation for reverse CFIUS because at the moment, as we are speaking, unless something has happened since we got on the line together, there is no reverse CFIUS rule or right. regulation or executive order. Once that drops, we'll have a sense of what's on the ba- on the album. But until then... The best way for us to think about this is to think about what CFIUS would require. CFIUS requires the investor and the target to make a disclosure. Or in the event that the target no longer exists, so the target is just assets, so the target has been acquired, and it's after the fact, then the investor, in certain instances, carries the weight of the disclosure. So it's reasonable to presume that the U.S. investor in China or in Qatar or in Saudi Arabia, whenever other country we may be worried about, um, will carry the burden for notification. In terms of your deal flow, when is the right time to start thinking about this? As soon as you've got an LOI, right? When we, when we are looking at normal CFIUS, if you are delaying the CFIUS analysis until normal diligence, you are too late because CFIUS has significant implications for transaction strategy and transactions timing. So at the letter of intent phase or whatever the equivalent is for the transaction that you're doing, that's when you want your CFIUS team, whether it's inside or outside counsel or you know skilled consultants like Crumpton or other experts to come in and help you evaluate this. Because if, if you get too far down the road in the transaction, and you discover the CFIUS issues too far in, you can have some pretty uncomfortable commercial and regulatory circumstances. Um, why does it make sense to take advantage to pay attention to this stuff now proactively rather than reactively? Well, first off, if we look at CFIUS and its current capacity to do ex post facto or post closing reviews yeah. of foreign investments in the United States, I can tell you, having defended a bunch of those, that they are substantially more rigorous, substantially more prosecutorial in terms of the outlook, and that the cost to the parties is usually between three and 10 times higher than it would be for a normal CFIUS, a proactive CFIUS filing. Yeah. Um, I'd expect that if you're dealing with that in a reverse CFIUS context, where you're unwinding decades of, invest- of investments that have already been made, that you're looking at some pretty long and legally pretty expensive uh, proceedings potentially. One other thing I want to say quickly before I hand back to Louis to talk about the deal implications, here's a taxonomy sort of rifting on some of the things that HK was thinking about earlier as to where the risks are 
from highest risk to lowest risk, right? So if you're a venture capital fund or a family office or a pension fund or something else, here's the highest risk. Anything involving the People's Liberation Army or the Chinese military industrial uh, complex. Complex. If you're investing directly or indirectly into that world, expect a world of pain. The second is anything involving the Chinese government. Right. And that includes not just the national government and all of it's the places where it has tentacles, but also the provincial governments, getting back to something that Kerr was saying earlier. Provincial governments, that's often where a lot of the action is in terms of economic development, but they're also treated as if they were the national government when it comes to the U.S. national security community. So first the PLA and the Chinese military industrial complex, then the Chinese government. Then after that, any state owned enterprises which is a substantial component of the Chinese economy, including especially automotive and manufacturing, as well as healthcare and high tech. And then after that, everything else. So if you need a taxonomy, military stuff, Chinese government stuff, state-owned enterprises, everything else. And that's probably going to be an inverted pyramid of risk. Um, right. We don't know whether it's going to be in the regulations or in the executive order, but if I were giving you a 411 on what to prioritize it, I'd prioritize it in that way. Uh, that's a great summary. And I, I, I wanted to kind of pivot this into the, to the, to the context of, that our audience finds themselves in, um, where they already have operations there, where they're going to put operations there. Um, there's technology involved uh, and there's movements of money. Um, and, and so yeah, each of those demands a, a different analysis. And I think it would be useful to speak about this in a, in a hypothetical context. So I've, I've kind of come, came up with some hypotheticals for us to just to talk about. And I think it just zooming out, I, I think our audience probably finds themselves in one of two situations. They already have operations there in China or some investment, or they want to make one uh, to be able to access Chinese customers, which, you know, from a business perspective, I think is our goal. Um, and so if you already have operations in China, um, you know, you, you either are majority or you're minority, uh, you either have U.S. employees there or you don't, and you have only, uh, locals, um, uh, and you either have money going in or money coming out, uh, and hopefully, uh, money coming out. But I, I think, um, yeah, the, the, the CFIUS here is going to talk about, or the reverse CFIUS is going to be about money going in and, uh, current HK, you know, what is our, um, risk analysis and and how do we um, advise U.S. investors of how to think about what to do about their existing operations in this in this context. So if if you need to be funding an operation and, you know, you've gone through this taxonomy uh, that Christopher has laid out for us, then what? Right. So, you know, back to your other question, Louie, about, you know, what's the risk of doing nothing? You know, what the VCs tell me is that all um, they don't want to be in a situation where the regulations drops tomorrow and they're forced to divest at a loss, right? They'd rather do their homework now, understand which ones are at risk, and if necessary, divest in advance of the regulation coming out. Um, in your hypothetical, Louie, you know, as we've all been talking about, the regulation has not coming out tomorrow. It's still being formed. So we don't know exactly whether investment in an operation in China would be affected or purely, you know, a VC or uh, pension investment would be uh, part of the purview. Um, great point. So we might need to divest um, and we might need to divest partially or entirely. Um, and and I think that is a, an important um, thing to to think about is, you know, is is there some solution where 
you know, you're you're a, a two-thirds owner or maybe you're a hundred percent owner and you become a forty-nine percent owner. Um, you know, I, I think yeah, that has massive implications on what is your return on that capital that you're investing. Uh, if you're only going to be getting 49 cents back, um, you know, from an accounting perspective, you can't consolidate that anymore. Uh, at least not entirely. You're only going to be able to consolidate, you know, how much you control. So it would be 49%. You'd be going from 100 to 49 cents. Uh, and, and that's a that's a big change. Um, and, and then there's the people issue. And, and Kerr... Um, you know, you and I have talked about this. If you're if you're a U.S. employee uh, of a of a U.S. owned uh, subsidiary in China, you know, how are you feeling right now? Yeah, you're feeling nervous. I think I think uh, U.S. employees and Chinese employees are are nervous in this environment. Everybody's is feeling uncomfortable. There's no question about it. And to to back your question about what what's the exercise that you need to take if you're doing an inbound investment right now? And by the way, I think. And an inbound investment right now is great timing uh, for two reasons. One is they need the investment. So you're going to get, you're never going to get a better deal than you're going to get right now. So if you have, frankly, the cojones to, to, to go into China right now, um, great idea. Second, you're going to see a consumer, consumer spending pop. Everybody's sort of focused on past in 2022 and and how horrible the economy was, which it was. I mean, 3% growth, you know, this is, I was actually predicting even, even lower, but um, they're coming in at about 3%. You're going to see, um, uh, you know, a consumer, consumer spending like you've never seen before in the, next, in the coming months, especially, you know, through the new year and beyond, just because uh, there's so much pent up demand. But, but, but part of the exercise when you're thinking about reverse CFIUS and thinking about your investment in, now is also a good time to think about the overall structure and how much capital you're committing to, to Louis's point about, about structure. Are you 49% or are you 51? Do you need to consolidate? What's the other thing to think about, and this is unpleasant, but we kind of have to uh, think about the catastrophic event. And, and again, I don't, I don't think it's, it's, you know, I'm sitting here in Taiwan. I feel perfect. I think that's a problem, but um, the catastrophic event is, is the elephant in, the, in, in, in every room. And um, one of the things that, that Louis and I have talked about in, in front of some of his clients is, is um, the idea of, of hard assets in China and, and uh, trying to avoid the situation that a lot of American companies found themselves in in Russia, for example. Well, you know, let me just try and... Uh, uh, Flip back this to to Christopher and and uh, and HK. Um, you know, we recently went through this catastrophic event with Russia and and uh, our our sanctions being applied to business that continued there. And, and Christopher, what did that look like for some U.S. businesses who had operations in in Russia? Um, what did they have to do then, and and where are they now? Yeah. So my my team between February of 2022 and, and present, you know, all 340, whatever days it is, uh, we have helped locate about two, relocate about two dozen major multinationals who had to shut everything down in Russia, either because they couldn't process any payments through the Russian financial system anymore, because all the Russians, all the Russian banks that are worth doing business with are now sanctioned or cut off from the SWIFT network or elsewise, 
Uh, they soon will be unable to pay taxes or tariffs or any kind of fees to the Russian Treasury, the Russian Ministry of Finance, right? Everything just sort of cascaded for them. And there were a series of very, very tight deadlines that they had to meet based on the limited authorizations that U.S. Treasury and other U.S. government agencies got. So what we wound up doing was literally cascading every one of the steps they had to take and locating first people offshore as quickly as we possibly could, especially people in the technology and software space, then locating IP and other key strategic assets for companies offshore, um, mothballing existing operations until they could be sold to somebody who wasn't sanctioned, running some really crazy diligence on the parties that were purchasing those mothballed assets and making sure that the purchases could be done in a way that didn't violate U.S., Canadian, British, or EU sanctions, which, by the way, are as joined up as any sanctions programs ever. I, I used to prosecute sanctions cases at Treasury, and I, I can tell you we've never seen anything like this before in terms of the degree to which uh, the, our, our allies in the United States are linked up. Um, and look, for, for most of our clients, uh, in addition to dealing with the legal risks and the major commercial losses, we also dealt with massive reputational risk right? Massive reputational risk where some days we'd be fighting to keep our, we'd be calling the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post to keep our clients out of the headlines because they were trying to do the right thing, but they couldn't do it fast enough without putting Russian employees at risk. Um, so you get into these really difficult situations where you've got to turn on a dime uh, and where the Russian law and the U.S. law contradict one another and there's a lot of tension and complying with U.S. law requires violating Russian law. And it's a mess. Uh, it's great if you're a lawyer and you make, you know, you're living clean solving problems for clients. But if you're the client dealing with that problem, it is a world of pain and you want to avoid it. So like Russia at China, there's sort of five key questions to ask when you start building up a relationship. And they're the same questions you learned in elementary school. Who, what, where, when, why, and how, Right. Who is the investment target or your business partner? What do they do for a living? Or rephrased, as, as HK might put it, what do they actually do for a living? <laughs> <laughs> um, where are they located? Now, note that we, we normally ask the where question first because we like to take a country-based analysis to this stuff. But there are plenty of perfectly fine investment targets and perfectly fine companies in high-risk countries. So the country is or usually a yellow light. But the who is the investment target, that's usually the red light. So first, who's the investment target? What do they actually do for a living? Where are they located, right? Then why do they need your investment, right? Why do they need your investment? They can do something weird with it. They can do something strange with your technology. And then the last question, if I'm an investor and I'm going into one of these higher risk environments, I want to know how much oversight and control I'm going to have. And in a country like Russia, it became very clear that U.S. companies, U.S. investors, they had no control or oversight as soon as the Putin regime decided to drop the hammer. And we know in China that the level of oversight and control that a U.S. investor can have will be very low. We deal with joint ventures all the time, especially joint ventures where the Chinese party is a state-owned enterprise. And the Chinese Communist Party representative on the Chinese joint venture company, for the Chinese joint venture company has substantially more oversight and control 
than the the foreign national employee, you know, deployed to China by the the U.S. based multinational. So, who are the investment target? What do they really do for a living? Where are they located? Why do they need your investment? And how much oversight and control will you have? If you're looking to mitigate your risk and get the hell out of Dodge fast, like some of my clients in Russia had to, those are the five questions to ask. Right. So, um, HK, I'd love to hear more about your firm and and what we are doing together to to help our our clients get ready for what might be coming down the pike. Um, you know, what's a tabletop exercise? Uh, what's a portfolio review analysis look like? And what are some of the recommendations that you know are being made uh, to to some of these folks who have investments um, or or that we could potentially make to somebody who might have investments in some of those folks that Christopher has has identified? Sure. So a tabletop exercise is basically a classroom type exercise where whereby you stress test the C-suite ideally and put before them a scenario, for example, a Chinese blockade of Taiwan by ship and air. And what does that mean for the company's operations, for their uh, businesses, for their supply chain, um, and help them kind of experience through living through the experience, um, what that means for them and how do you actually uh, learn lessons from that experience, right? Uh, which we've done with Foley and your clients as well to help them experience that firsthand. Um, it's much, uh, much more impactful, I think, for people to um, experience that stress test as opposed to reading about it. On the portfolio review, it's what I mentioned before, is actually take the time now while you can to look at the portfolio in China and figure out which ones might be problematic based upon what we know so far in terms of what the U.S. government cares about. Um, you know, Curry said that my statement about past investments probably terrified a lot of people. And let me uh, expand upon that. So depending upon how the regulations are written, if the fine print says that a new investment is defined as a new investment or um, a Series B investment, once the company reaches a milestone, that's problematic for a lot of investors, I think. Or if it includes a rebalancing of the portfolio in China, that could qualify as a new investment. So I think the fine print will really matter here when the regulation comes out. Um, the number of other... Uncertainties, number one, is whether or not they're going to just purely require notification to the government of the investment or whether they're going to block the authority like CFIUS to block a deal, to block an investment firm from investing in a certain company. Um, and maybe it's a hybrid. Maybe it's um, uh, blocking authority only for investments in the semiconductor industry uh, but everything else requires notification. That could be the the hybrid uh, outcome. Well, it, it's it's... I find it very ironic that at a time in history where there is more trade between the United States and China than there has ever been before, um, there are fewer, you know, what I'll call M&A or investment transactions that are happening than in, in the last uh, 20 years. Um, and, and we have this, you know, potential reverse CFIUS coming down the pike. HK, you know, it would be really helpful if, if um, you could tell us, you know, where, where it stands. And so it, for everyone's benefit, it, it started out with a uh, piece of legislation, I believe, in the Senate, and I believe it was Senator Conran, a Republican from Texas, who was uh, uh, sponsoring. and And I, I may have gotten that wrong, so correct me. Um, and and then it morphed into this potential executive order. and And t tell us a little bit more about about that HK. So there are parallel tracks. There's a Casey Cornyn bill, which is the draft legislation. Um, sponsored by both a Democrat and a Republican. It's a very bipartisan issue. 
um, which didn't make into a law in the fall, but still has potential to make into a law this spring. Parallel to that congressional effort is the White House pushing this executive order, which can just be a regulation issued by the, the White House without um, requiring the force of law. Uh, and both are kind of competing with each other for which one will come out first. And I think, um, you know, the executive order is much easier to issue without a lot of um, negotiation between the different parties on the Hill. Um, there's some speculation that might come out in the next, you know, uh, 30, 60 days. A law will take hard longer to enact, but there's a lot of momentum behind um, both efforts. And I, again, as I mentioned, you know, all this is a continuation of the Trump administration. This is one area where Democrats and Republicans agree upon, which is limiting uh, technology access by China. Uh, and so you see this is a continuation of a Trump policy, which the Biden folks have adopted and actually expanded upon um, to the surprise of many. So it sounds like legislation is going to be tough because despite there being a bipartisan consensus, there, there are a lot of folks who, who oppose this, um, it, it probably in American business and, and, and even maybe uh, other sectors of, of the, 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 the populace or the demography here. Um, what's driving the, the U.S. presidential order and the timing of it today, HK? Well, timing-wise, I think they want to get it done last year. I understand there's kind of uh, internal um, negotiations within the Biden administration between the Treasury Department, Commerce Department, and the National Security Agency as to how far they should go with the executive order. So I think that's kind of delaying the issuance of the executive order. What's driving it generally, though, is that they want to find some way to, what they call, um, put some curbs on on the financial investment into into China, Right. Um, some people call this the weaponization of finance, where we're trying to find ways to um, limit U.S. investment into capital-intensive industries like semiconductors that are critical for both commercial and uh, defense uh, uh, purposes. Um, Kerr, what's the view of American business on on uh, this potential piece of legislation or executive order? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. Um, I think I think whatever it was, it's going to be if if the concept of um, renewing past investments really comes get if that makes it into the headlines, I think I think their posture is going to is going to change just because there is so much capital already invested there. Um, I think also there's um, back to one of Chris's comments about control. Um, uh, you know, and the the different structures of American business over there, and I think there's more of a realization that that uh, given the new environment, meaning national security really dominating the the, the context here, uh, I think American companies are feeling less and less in control, and I and I think again that 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 should influence their thought process in terms of their enthusiasm for the wholly owned subsidiary, right? That was oh that's always been. The, the push-pull, right? They, you know, in early days, it drove people crazy that they were forced into these joint ventures because they didn't have control. Now they're kind of realizing, well, we don't have control anyway. So, so, so the joint venture actually starts looking looking much more much more attractive. the 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 other thing, um, the other thing to bring up is something that that Louis brought up before, which is which was the um, I don't know countervailing measure the right the right term but you know as the US government comes up with these 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 export controls and policies China doesn't sit still I mean they have their own their own regulations that uh, that and oftentimes they're designed to protect the Chinese party from 
what they perceive as being an unfair, unreasonable U.S. measure. And so one example of that is something called the the book called 实体中清单, so that un- unreliable entities list is what they call it in Chinese. And and so this this was literally the the counterparty of of the uh, of the of the entity list that that the Commerce Department maintains. So there's those kinds of things that that so that that U.S. businesses in China really need to pay attention to. So to to HK Park's uh, suggestion to do these tabletop exercises that that's that's one of the reasons to do that is. Because if you look at it in a vacuum, you're only facing one way. You're reading up on the U.S. regulations. Well, what happens on the Chinese side to that, that, that reacts to that? So all that has to be put into context. And just one last thing to, if, if we don't have people's attention yet, back to the question of um, U.S. personnel. So China has, the, and I don't want to scare anybody here, but, but if, 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 if we get upside down in a legal spat, um, and there's disagreements about how to pull this thing apart or who's responsible, who's damaged by what, what, what regulation was unreasonable, which one wasn't. Keep in mind, China uses this, this concept called an exit ban, which basically keeps the U.S. citizen in place in China, not in jail, but in China, within the borders of China, cannot leave until this issue is resolved. So keep that in mind as you think about how many expats you've got in in in, in China, and uh, you don't want to get into a legal dispute over there. You, you do not, and your expat staff uh, definitely don't want to be involved in that. So now that now that Kerr has thoroughly scared us all, uh, <laughs> HK started it. I didn't start it. I have a couple of really quick questions. So what is that we spent most of this conversation talking about China, but. The regulation is likely to also impact uh, investments in other countries and regions as well. Is that accurate? And do we do we know? Is this China, Russia? It'll probably say you know countries that are adverse to the U.S. So China, Russia, North Korea, Iran. Okay, great. But I one of the things important to note is you know th- this stuff only works because there's an exception to the WTO rules called the fundamental security exception, right? Where you basically say national security trumps our WTO obligations. And that fundamental security exception has become more fundamental (laughs) over time. It's kind of like my cat. It keeps getting bigger and bigger the more we feed it. Um, So when you look at fundamental security exception and you look at the list of countries, obviously it's going to be the sanctioned countries, the countries that are state sponsors of terrorism, but also look at the BRICS generally look at the Middle East, especially UAE, Saudi, and Qatar because of geopolitical reasons and also because some of them have been a little friendly with Putin lately and the Biden administration doesn't like that. Um, you know, And don't take India off the table. Um, India is a pretty big country with a lot right. of dynamism and right. it's growing faster than China is right now, at least in terms of population. So I'd expect India to be on the table as well, especially because India historically has been a backdoor to Russia in terms of military and technology flows. And now the number one financier of, of the Putin regime uh, with uh, their purchases of discounted yeah. Russian oil. But Brett, I know we're, all, we're coming up at time. I want to thank this awesome group of panelists for gracing us today. And uh, also want to invite folks uh, to reach out to any of them or us at, at Foley or, or uh, Brett at Fourthly about 
how to navigate um, what what is coming down the pike. And and we've hopefully given everyone a lot of ideas and and food for thought. Brett? Yeah, thanks, Louis. I was just going to say, uh, I think you can probably find uh, all of us on LinkedIn. So if there's anything we can do to help, uh, reach out to us. Uh, thanks to all of you for attending, and especially thanks to our expert panelists for joining at uh, various from various time zones around the world. And uh, Kerr, I think you just stepped off a plane recently, so you're uh, you've got both you've got both uh, the time zone issue and a jet lag issue. Both. Good news is I'm up in the middle of the night anyway, so here we are. <laughs> yeah. Nice. All right. Thanks very much Good. to you all. A pleasure. Thank you. This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, I'd really appreciate it if you could spare a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your support truly makes a difference. You can find out more at fourthly.com. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks so much for listening.